welcome everyone again to Common Ground. Tonight we have a very special guest, Mary Jo Meadow. Mary Jo has meditated for over 50 years in three traditions. A Catholic sister vowed to the Theravadan nun's precepts and mother of eight adult children, including Rebecca Bradshaw, who was here uh, just recently at Common Ground. Um, she teaches Vipassana in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Australia. She is psychology and religious studies professor emerita at Minnesota State University in Cato. She studied with Joseph Goldstein at IMS and with Sayadaw Upandita. Did I mention she has eight kids? <laughs> and three cats. Oh, many, many more cats over the years. Oh, Just years. three right now. Currently, three cats. Thank you again for coming. Um, a few short announcements before I start. Um, I don't think anyone is going to have any trouble hearing me, so I ask to dispense with the amplification system. But if anybody is having a problem, if you wave your hand, he's going to keep his eye out to, to see, and so you can, you can ask if you are having trouble. Second short announcement before I start, back by your guest book in the corner there, um, I put an open notebook. Uh, some of you, of course, have already uh, are already on my email list. You only get about four, maybe five emails a year from me, so you're not flooded. But if any of you not on my email list would like to get on it, the, there's a pad back there that's so labeled that you could put your name on it. And go ahead. Go ahead. What do I said one quick announcement before you start. Um, one of our members here lives close by. If there's a car parked in his driveway and he's trying to get out, and it's a it's a Hyundai Sonata, Minnesota plates PRV 729. Oh, oh I'm sorry. It's, it's parked in a handicap zone. I think was the was the problem. So if anyone has that car, you know, you could time to move it just in case. Good enough. And the only other thing I want to say is not exactly an announcement. Um, uh, many of you have, have come when I've spoken before, and so you know what to expect. But just for those who don't, I want to mention that one of the things that in discussion with, with Joseph Goldstein, who has been my major teacher, although I've sat with the, with the monks, um, we sort of agreed that my function was to bring this practice to Christians because I could speak to them, I could present it to them in language that would be understandable to them and show how it fits with some of the major um, Christian saints and mystics. Uh, so my talks, because of my psychology background and this background, my talks generally throw in some psychological perspectives and they do also throw in the teachings of a Christian mystic named John of the Cross. If you're not familiar with him, you might be quite interested in seeing how closely his teachings fit with our Buddhist teachings. Um, my daughter, Rebecca Bradshaw, to, to whom Kevin just referred, when I first gave her John to read, she was not a half an hour, she came back and she said, it's Dhamma, Mom, it's Dhamma. I said, yeah, I told you it is. 
Um, and he has been called a crypto-Buddhist by, by many people. So this talk will have some psychology and some John and some Buddhist teachings and some integration of all of that, just so that those of you who now you know what to expect. And I will take questions at the end. So what I'm going to talk about tonight is a teaching that many people find hard understanding. The Buddha's notion of no self. And I see it as essentially the same understanding of Christian mystic John of the Cross. Uh, this might surprise many people because Christians, of course, use a notion of soul. And how on earth could that fit with no self or no soul teachings? Um, when I get down to John in this talk, I hope I can show you how it fits with John's understanding of soul quite well. Teachings on no self um, really form the heart of the meditator's quest. They're the core teaching um, of many, across many different traditions. I want to open with somebody you've probably heard quoted before, uh, the great Tibetan master Kalu Rinpoche. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Perhaps it will make this a little more understandable if we backtrack a little. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. That is the appearance of separation, individuality, no sense of the underlying oneness and interrelatedness of all of us. So the appearance of separation. There is a reality, and we're that reality. When we realize it, we see we are not a thing, a separate individual island by ourselves. And when we realize that we're not a thing, we realize we're everything. So that might help a little with the Kalarempache. Now, mystic John of the Cross, the Christian, wrote, to arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. To come to be what you are not, you must go in a way in which you are not. Of course, there's another Buddhist master who put it much more simply. Big self, big problem. No self, no problem. <laughs> These teachers mean something much more radical than many of us willingly uh, um, see. We truly have to relinquish separate self-sense. Or as scholar Ken Wilber put it, except the death of the ego self. If we do that, some people fear they're simply going to disappear. It doesn't mean that there won't still be something here. We just are, we get past that concern with protecting this, enhancing this, glorifying this, and all the other business around that sense of self in which we engage. Once self-sense is let go of, the effects are far more far-reaching than most of us um, 
would ever have expected. Philosopher Sartre said, hell is other people. These teachings say that Sartre, though wrong, is close to right. Hell is seeing other people as other. Hell is seeing oneself as something separate and distinct from everyone and everything else. The Buddha spoke of three levels of happiness, the happiness of being moral, which frees us from shame and guilt and remorse, the happiness of having a mind free of unwholesome, ugly mind states, and then the highest happiness, which is touching Nibbana, which really rests on relinquishing self-sense. Or as, um, as long as we're full of the sense of self, there's no room for anything else. As long as, uh, how John of the Cross put this is, quote, God does not fit in an occupied heart, close quote. And of course he does use God language. So I'm going to start with psychologist Carl Rogers. Here's what he said about self. Now, this is a very dense little, I'm going to unpack it, but I want to give you his exact words first, even though it's a bit dense. Self is the organized, consistent, conceptual gestalt composed of perceptions of the characteristics of the I or me and the perceptions of the relationships of the I or me to others and to various aspects of life. It is a fluid and changing gestalt, a process, but at any given minute, it's a specific entity. Wow. Okay. Here we go. Self is a bunch of perceptions that I have about something that I call I or me. Because it's not a thing, but a process, it's constantly changing. But if we look at these perceptions that make up that sense of an I or me, at any given instant, they seem to describe something lasting. We think the concept I and then see the process is called I as an enduring and unchanging thing. But then in an instant it changes. Actually it is constantly changing. What I considered me a second ago is now different. Elsewhere Rogers said that self-sense is only a hypothesis we make up for meeting life. So according to Rogers, self is a collection of ideas I have about some ongoing and constantly changing processes that I have labeled I or me, and I see as a solid, unchanging, lasting reality. But this is simply not the case. This thing never stays constant. Its incessant changes are most easily seen in deep meditation practice. And such constant change, of course, is one truth that our practice shows us. So Rogers clearly saw the fictional character of the idea of self, which of course is also a core teaching of the Buddha. And 
when we get to John of the Cross's understanding of what he called the substance of the soul, we'll see that he had similar ideas. So because it's what is new to you, I'm going to start with some St. John. He distinguished between what he called substance or the lasting quality of things and all the qualities and characteristics that pass. He recognized the passing nature of bodies, emotions, thoughts, what we call personality, which is just a combination of memories, thoughts, reactions, and emotions. None of these things about us is lastingly real. They come into existence, they're constantly changing, and then drop away. John defined what's left when we peel away everything that's not lasting as the substance of the soul. Now, most of us, and I imagine some of you out here have, have Christian backgrounds, if you're not still Christian, most people think that Christians think of soul as some kind of sort of airy, ethereal thing that's somewhere inside me that's going to last forever when everything else goes. That's not quite what John, St. John meant when he referred to the substance of the soul. He saw it simply as a capacity to receive experience of God. So easily related to the idea that what Buddhists call consciousness is a capacity to receive experience and ultimately, when we're finished clinging to other things, capacity to touch Nibbana. Um, it's very, very, very similar. So John's substance of the soul is no thing at all, and it's not fixed and unchanging. It's a capacity that is constantly, continually changing. So you could really say that John of the Cross saw the heart of our being, the only lasting thing about us, as an emptiness waiting to be filled. Not a thing at all. He called this substance of the soul the heart of our being. And by that he meant our deepest being, that's the heart of our being. Um, Buddhists, of course, symbolize the center of our being as located in the heart. When John of the Cross spoke of this substance of the soul, it was very easy to see that he was talking about something constantly changing, not some thing. He said, when we're still clinging to a lot of other things, um, any experience that we might have in the substance of the soul that relates to God is not always pleasant. It can feel rather overwhelming. It can feel um, oppressive, even. Um, but as we gradually empty out our clinging to other things, this experience becomes lighter and full of joy and happiness. John said that people who think they know anything about God when they recite all the concepts and ideas and thoughts and things that are said about the idea of God, he said, that's just the backside. And if you cling to the backside, the concepts, ideas, notions, etc., he said you will never see God's face. So he shared, uh, very directly, he shared the Buddhist opinion that we have to realize that our concepts, ideas, and thoughts are not reality, real reality. 
They're just notions in our mind. And they last or stay in existence only so long as we hold them in existence in our mind. They don't have any lasting reality. So in many, many places, John of the Cross says, if you really want to know the ultimate reality, you have to let go of absolutely everything that you think you know about God. Because as long as you're clinging to those ideas and notions, they're a barrier. Now, how Buddhist can you get? I mean, that's, that, I mean, John of the Cross, it's easy to see why people called him a, a crypto-Buddhist and why he got in a little bit of trouble with the brass at, at, in the church at various times in his life. Um, well, one time they even had him, on, had him on what they call the index of forbidden books. But um, once somebody like him is safely dead, then they can start to, you know, then they then they can start to look more favorably on him as as they did eventually. Um, John had a lovely image about the capacity to know God, or we could say to touch Nibbana. He said. Uh, think about light passing through a dirty window. Um, and the same, and, and the dirt and smudge on the glass obscures the passage of the light through it. And he said, in the same way, all the things that we cling to clutter clear perception of, of God, our ultimate reality. Um, and so this is why all that stuff has to be emptied out. And one of the most important things that has to be emptied out is this notion of being a separate individual self. For John, all that remains in the end of knowing God, and he even called it becoming God, he said, quote, so great is this union that even though they differ in substance and glory and appearance, we seem to be God, and God seems to be us. This is when we're not clinging to anything else. Um, all other objects of desire have to be let go of. If we cling to passing objects, including God or self-images, um, all of this is blocked. He had another beautiful image that I like. He spoke about what happens when you apply a flame to a soggy log of wood? Once you can get it to ignite, the flame starts driving all the dross out of the wood, and it makes it smoke and give off foul odors and sputter as all the moisture and the dampness and the foulness in the wood is, is pushed out. But eventually, the flame will transfer, tra uh, trans change will transmute that log of wood into fire itself. And if you've ever seen a completely blowing hot log of wood, you know what I mean. It actually takes on all the characteristics of fire. So this is how he explained the idea that, yeah, we become divine, in his opinion. His Dark Knight poem, in which he described his God experience, said, all things ceased. I went out from myself and abandoned myself. Any Buddhist could have written that as a description of touching Nibbana. All things ceased. Now, it's very important to understand, and this is something that 
people confused because they still have that sense of self there. John wasn't saying the individual personality or ego gets divinized because that has ceased to stand out as separate to exist, stand apart from or away from, which is what exist, exist means, to stand apart or away from. So the substance of the soul, that emptiness, that capacity to be filled, becomes the object of what fills it, and that's all that's known. The problem is not that we have experience of all these other things. Certainly we're going to have to, as long as we live in a world of thingness. But it's important, what, is, what the problem is, is that we let them be important to us and we let them move us. Here's another very, very Buddhist saying of John's, quote, do not store objects of experience in the memory, but leave them immediately and forget them in such a way that no form or figure of any of these objects remains. The memory should be left free and disencumbered and unattached to any heavenly or earthly consideration. John spoke of different depths at which he said this emptiness can be filled with, its, uh, with the object of knowing God, which again corresponds beautifully to our Theravadan tradition, which outlines four different levels or depths of touching Nibbana en route to full enlightenment. By the time we get to the deepest level, any reference to the passing phenomena we call self is actually absolutely impossible. There's no room for anything except that with which we are completely filled, which is knowledge of our ultimate goal. Many of you are undoubtedly familiar with the classic teaching of the Buddhist on self. He used the notion of a chariot um, to illustrate this. We can get a little more modern and use the idea of a car and relate the teachings from that sutta uh, to an automobile. What is the car? Is it the wheels? No. Is it the chassis? No. Is it the seats? No. Is it the steering wheel? Is it the brakes? And we can go and we can name all these different parts, our individual processes or functions that go to make up what we call a car. All of these things are occurring. They're there, wheels, brakes, etc. But car doesn't exist. It's just a concept that we use to refer to a collection of all of those particular parts together. So, the Buddha argued, we've got processes, material processes going on. We have the processes of the mind states that go through our mind. We have the processes of our consciousness, our knowing and receiving of experience. When we have all of these processes cohering together, um, we make the empty concept of I or me 
which there isn't I or me apart from anything but just a collection of processes, just like there's no car as a thing separate and distinct from just a collection of the various parts or aspects or functions that make up what we call car. So that's the classic argument in, in the Buddhist scriptures. Oh, there are others too about um, if I owned this thing, I would have some control over it and I could tell a headache, go away, and it would go away. I could you know, do various things like that. So there are other arguments, but the chariot one is the main one. How do we wind up forming this notion of this empty concept of I? Many experiences that impact the knowing consciousness, experiences that consciousness receives, are somewhat like things that happened before. And we form concepts about them, calling them that thing. Forming a concept congeals experience making it look solid and lasting. For example, I say tree. An experience of light and color and shape and movement is turned into some fixed, unchanging thing in my mind. But we know that's not true. Various experiences called tree certainly differ from each other. Even one particular tree is never exactly the same from instant to instant. So there's not some fixed, unchanging thing there. There's just a collection of changing processes that make up what I call tree. What we call sea, our ocean, is the constantly shifting movement of drops of water, which are themselves physical, chemical processes, waves, individual, quotes, things that appear in this process swell and die crashing against the shore. And then they're sucked back into the larger body. It's all only temporary processes within the larger process that we call C. But there's no C apart from the collection of the processes. C is just a term that we use to refer to all of those constantly changing processes. What we call a symphony just an unfolding process, a succession of notes, each one rising, lingering, dying. Where is the thing you could call a symphony? A sunset, just the shifting movement and patterns of light and shadow and color. Can you hold the thing you call sunset? So we have all of these summary concepts that we use that are just really referring to collections of different processes that are continually changing and shifting. There's no fixed static thing anywhere in it. Philosopher Alan Watts summed it up beautifully. Quote, if you try to capture running water in a bucket, it's clear that you do not understand it and that you will always be disappointed. For in the bucket, the water does not run. 
to have running water, you have to let go of it and let it run. The same is true of life. So we're, he urges us not to try to capture the running water of real experience in the bucket of our concepts because they freeze and can experience and don't let it be the ever-changing flow that it is. Just as John of the Cross said, not to let experiences make an impression on us and not to hold on to them, the Buddha likewise taught. Remember, in one of his shortest sermons ever, he said, quote, in the scene, let there be just the scene. In the hearing, let there be just the hearing. In the sensing, let there be just the sensing. In other words, let our experiences be the flow that they are and don't grab hold of them and try to can them in concepts and additions to them and making them more than they are, more than just the flow of the stream of experiences that moves through us. We're not supposed to nurse these impressions into concepts that add something that we, in our minds, have created to our bare experience. Alan Watts had another saying that I really like. Settling for concepts or images about anything is like going into a restaurant when we're hungry and eating the menu. <laughs> The Buddha's teaching on impermanence then says that everything is always changing. It's in constant flux. Even the most solid appearing mountain is eroding in some places and adding bulk in others. Its vegetation also continually shifts and changes. Nothing in earthly experience ever stays the same. This is certainly true of what I call me. Part of what I called me this morning went down the drain when I showered and dead skin cells flaked off. What I called cereal this morning is now becoming part of what I call me. <laughs> Biologists say that no cell in the body lasts beyond seven years as cells die and their contents are replaced using the protein building blocks we've eaten according to the genetic code in the body's cells. But mistakes occur in this reproduction. We call them aging. <laughs> the reproducibility of cells increasingly falters until finally what is reproduced can no longer sustain life. Then the material process I call me ceases, unless an accident or illness has gotten me first. But not only our bodies, but everything else we might call me is in constant flux. Emotions, thoughts, images, even memories change. For we constantly rearrange how we recall the past according to present need. If you don't think this is so and you have journaled, try to recall an even relatively important day to you from five years ago and then read what you actually wrote about it when you journal. 
um, it's amazing how we change our memories as time passes to fit our present needs. So everything is just in constant flux. It's no thing here. So just as psychologist Rogers said directly, as John of the Cross clearly implied, the Buddha also said, we're each a process made up of sets of interlocking processes, not some static, permanent thing. We know the processes making up me are threefold in Buddhist thought. Material processes make up our bodies, and the processes of mind states are the mental contents like emotions, perceptions, impulses, and the like. And then there are the processes of consciousness, the knowing faculty. So when we have processes of matter and processes of mind states and processes of consciousness occurring together, um, these three, we call it a human being. Remember, John of the Cross also considered all of these things passing phenomena that aren't going to last, just like those processes of us, constantly changing, no fixed thing. We're also not separate, isolated collections of processes, because the processes that each of us are interlocks with many other ongoing processes. When the Buddha said there are no fixed essences, he meant that nothing exists that is not a constantly changing process, constantly affected by the larger cosmic processes of which it's a part. This includes I or me, of course. And the exchange of solid matter, of fluids, of gases, the very air we breathe in and expel, constant interchange with the larger environmental processes occurs. In the kitchen and in the bathroom, we daily see reminders of the constant recycling of matter in the universe. We take in what we need from the matter out there, and then we give back down in the toilet or down the shower drain what is no longer useful to us to be reprocessed and reused over and over again. Part of what I call me now was maybe part of my favorite cat when I was a child at one time because the matter is just constantly being recycled. But there's even more within us than we think of. Each of us is a little ecosystem, host to a multitude of smaller existences. The average person's eyelids and eyebrows house hundreds of microorganisms. And you could certainly say that the friendly bacteria in your digestive tract really discuss your, digest your food rather than saying that you're digesting your food. Biologist Lewis Thomas said, each of our cells contains little critters that power them, without whom, quote, we would not move a muscle, drum a finger, or think a thought, close quote. 
So where on earth in all of this are you going to find a separate I or me? Processes within processes within processes is the bottom line. Scientists who study chaos, and there are, they've actually made a science out of what we call chaos. Um, these scientists who, scientists who study these apparently random chance occurrences in the universe say that close looking shows that everything is interrelated. Nothing can really be called an accident. Everything is caused, the Buddha would say, conditioned by all the ongoing processes that affect it. These scientists describe what they call the butterfly effect. How a butterfly fluttering its wings in Hong Kong in January affects weather patterns in America the next summer. Truly, as the poet said, not one of us is an island. Everything is connected. So in a very real way, we are our experiences. If we focus our attention on some solidified understanding of bodily and mental processes as a separate, distinct self, an I or me, then we experience the hell of isolation in looking at things that way. Close to Sartre's opinion, hell is other people. They impinge on what I want. They get in my way. They pull in front of me on the freeway. I mean, all of these, you know, all of these things. But we can focus our attention on the larger cosmic processes in which the processes making up self are embedded. Actually, this is the notion of the idea of the continual unfolding of the Dhamma, of the reality of things. How we, how we look at it will have a large effect on how we view our relatedness, our lack of it with what is around us, and ultimately a large effect on our happiness. A little bit about our final end, as John of the Cross and the Buddha saw it. John of the Cross taught that when we're completely free of holding on to anything else, that emptiness that we are ultimately is scoured of trying to fill it with all sorts of other things, he said, then it rests only in loving knowledge of God. John even went so far as to say that the utterly pure of heart don't die of diseases or age. He says, an impetus of love tears through the veil, and they die into God's love. Buddhist teachings say that when the consciousness is completely purified of attachment and clinging, and we're at the end of our last lifetime, consciousness fixes on Nibbana at the time of death, and this dying into Nibbana is all that there is. So how similar these teachings are. We have in the end, the substance of the soul, knowing God, or the knowing consciousness fixed on Nibbana. Everything else that I would call I or me is unimportant. It goes back to the dust or the energy from which it was drawn. I've already mentioned 
John spoke about levels of this knowing God and that our Theravadan tradition posits four different levels of this enlightening touch. Each touching Nibbana at each of these levels affects radical change in our being. John of the Cross spoke similarly of the healing power of what he called divine touches. Quote, some of these divine touches produced in the substance of the soul are so enriching that one of them would be sufficient not only to remove definitively all the imperfections that we've been unable to eradicate throughout our entire life, but also to fill it with all goodness and blessing. So what are these teachings telling us? That most of what we concern ourselves with as me is simply passing phenomena that we can't hold on to anyway. That what is really real and lasting, call it Nibbana or the Godhead, is in no way destructible regardless of what we do or do not do. That what the I or me ultimately comes to is knowing or touching or dwelling in or tasting, a lot of different metaphors are used, that which is really real and indestructible. And that we come to this only when we have ceased clinging to other things. And that a major obstacle to this is clinging to that pitiful combination of changing processes that I call me. I'm almost ready to end and take your questions. In fact, I'm going to skip some of what I have here. So, we often try to fill that emptiness within us with other things, including the trappings of self. But as John of the Cross put it, our capacity is deep, profound, and infinite, and these things can never completely satisfy us. Our capacity, our hunger, our thirst is deep and infinite. To fill this infinite capacity, John of the Cross said, when we are reduced to nothing, no thing, the spiritual union between the substance of the soul and God will be an accomplished fact. As Kala Rinpoche put it at the beginning of my talk, we are that reality. And then when we realize that, we see that we're nothing, no thing, and being nothing, we're everything. Again, John of the Cross, to come to be what you are not, you must go in a way in which you are not. When we stop focusing on the changing processes we call I or me, we can come to see the only true and enduring real. And that's being all that there is when all things cease, when separation and thingness goes, we will have thus become no thing and we will become everything. And that's it. I'm open. And when you ask you questions, please speak loudly enough. I'm one-eared tonight. My left hearing aid died.
and has not been repaired yet, so I'm right-eared only. Um, it was interesting. I heard something on National Public or Minnesota Public Radio today about uh, the idea of hope. It came from some uh, earlier show where an author said one of the uh, evils of the world is hope. That uh, that we shouldn't we should abandon hope. It's sort of like there's a lot of alliterations to hope in in literature and Christianity and Buddhism about you know like uh, in Dante's Inferno the the over hell it says abandon all hope. What would John of the Cross say about hope? And I, I don't know a lot about him, but I know that mm -hmm. hope about the dark night of the soul and also Buddhism. When you think about it in terms of no self, this and the idea is that there's no fixed and permanent self. Is there reason to hope there? Is hope something that you should abandon? Something that shouldn't be there because it, it's it's only it's catering to this notion of a fixed person that hopes for something that moves into the future. Did everybody get the gist of that question? Okay. What John of the Cross would say is, if your hope is based on some, dare I use the word childish, I guess I will. If, if your notion of hope is based on some childish idea that this thing somehow is going to wind up lasting forever, then you definitely should abandon all hope. But it's, I mean, it's rather foolish to have that kind of hope, isn't it? Um, John would even say if your notion is that there's some fixed or airy thing floating around inside of you that's a thing kind of notion of soul, you should abandon all hope. But as you probably, many of you have seen in, in the deeper moments of your meditation experience, when you get so just with what's happening now that there's no sense of this is happening to a me or I, there's just this happening, um, you realize that it's, it's a great relief and burden not to have that sense of that I there in which it's occurring. When we get to even the deeper kind of experiences where we start having the kind of experiences that help confirm us in the notion of no self, those times when the ego boundaries just drop and there's that expanded sense of relatedness, then we see that there's even greater happiness in that. If we don't insist on clinging to some idea that Mary Jo personality or any other thing about Mary Jo is going to last forever, but that there is a capacity to receive experience of what is ultimately the only fully satisfying possibility to be filled with God to touch Nibbana, whatever you would call it, that we can hope for. But if you want to hope that something called Mary Jo is going to be is going to be able to have that experience and simultaneously cling to some sense of Mary Jo, forget it. No hope for that. And I don't know if that quite got your question, but that's what the teachings of John of the Cross would wind up with that kind of a conclusion. And is that is that similar to Buddhist? To oh, very, very much. The only thing you're going to have in the end is the consciousness dying into Nirvana. And that's not the limited, narrow 
how I'm perceiving things right now, because consciousness is a constantly changing process. And when this being is gone, when Mary Jo dies, all the parts that made up Mary Jo will continue on, but not as Mary Jo. I mean, the matter will rot, as I say, and be reused by the universe for other beings. The consciousness will continue on, but it's not the person of Mary Jo. It's just the flame of knowing that continues on. So nothing is lost, but it's not going to be around. The individual person isn't going to continue, according to Buddhist teachings. So, so they really say essentially the same thing. But the, the notion, no more Mary Jo to enjoy heaven or to enjoy nirvana or whatever, but that's, that's not how it works. There can't be, there's not room for a sense of Mary Jo and being completely filled with that which is the only ultimate satisfaction. Having the knowing capacity within us, call it consciousness or substance of the soul. Having nothing else exist for it, then our ultimate end, because that's all that it's filled with, this knowing capacity. So is that dark night of the soul a transformation from the idea of hoping for an individual self to hope for to a sense of peace with being? John described two dark nights. The first, the dark night of sense, is getting rid of sensory desires and all of that kind of stuff. In, in the dark night of spirit, which really corresponds to a stage outlined in the Abhidhamma, the psychology of the Buddhist practice, corresponds to a time called advanced insight, where all your moorings are shaken and lost at you. Let's give someone else a turn. Mm -hmm. Is the identification of yourself as a Buddhist as opposed to a Christian or a Jew the reaffirming of self and the times of capture in a bucket of water? Definitely. To identify yourself as a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jew is taking this self and putting it in little pigeonholes. Um, in reply to that, I love something. I don't know how many of you have heard of a man named Henri Lasseau, who was a Catholic Benedictine monk who went to India to bring Christ to the heathen, and he found Vedanta practice there and realized that he, what Vedanta was doing to him, and he was getting all upset by the fact I'm supposed to find more that my real, you know, satisfaction and and spiritual growth and everything as as a Christian, and here I am finding that Vedanta is giving me more. So he went to his Vedanta teacher, really quite upset with all this, because it was kind of tearing him apart. And the teacher said, oh, call yourself a Buddhist, call yourself a Hindu, call you. Where you are now is beyond that. So at one level of consciousness, we'll want to accrue all these different labels to ourselves. I'm an American, I'm a Canadian, I'm a Englishman, whatever, you know, or I'm a Christian, I'm a... But they're just labels that we're attaching to something that we call an I. And we can grow beyond needing to do that. Did you have more? Sorry. You're on. Uh, so this whole concept seems much 
much easier to do when you're single and you can kind of go through life and, and sort of adopt this this sort of philosophy of living. But when you, <laughs> I'm actually curious about your experience with having eight children, um, how you incorporate sort of your path when you start getting into, like, say, a relationship where somebody isn't quite on the same type of path, or what is the importance of a relationship when you're bringing kids into the equation, or you're getting married, or, I don't know if I'm, uh, <laughs> because it seems like talking about the, the natural process and flow of life is really easy for me when I'm single, which I have been for a long time, and now I'm in a relationship, and it's like, when you're trying to communicate, and you're trying to let go of desire and hope, it's like, I find myself not even being able to communicate, because I'm trying to think about letting these things go, but I have a partner that I have to be communicating with, and planning, and all these things that, you know, we sort of lose and come to let go of. I think it would be very difficult um, to build a relationship with somebody whose understanding and approach was quite different from oneself about these ultimate issues because there's lots of gulf to somehow manage to, to bridge. And I, I think that would make it more difficult. Um, as far as children are concerned, I suffered greatly from a very intense, very ultra-conservative religious training when I was a child. And it took me a lot of tremendously deep emotional suffering to manage to extricate myself from that conditioning. So by the time I had children, by the way, six of them are homemade, but two were imported. Um, so they weren't all homemade, but six of them were homemade. Um, by the time I was rearing my children, I did not want to put them through what, what I went through. Um, I let them know where I was myself, but I didn't really impose anything on them. I let them know that I thought the spiritual path was enormously important. Um, and. Um, was open to answering any questions about where I was and everything, but they were allowed free reign to, to find their own way. And um, there's a wide, wide range of difference among them. Two of them have absolutely no interest in spiritual work at all, and I say, okay, that's where they happen to be right now, okay. And then, of course, there's my daughter, Rebecca Bradshaw, whom a number of you have heard speak. and. Um, I have a, a daughter who's a fundamental Protestant. I have a son who's a Lutheran. I have, I mean, they're like all over the waterfront. And that's okay. I think each person will find their own, their own level of gravity at any given time. I certainly, I think it's really an injustice to children to think that your children should be expected to adopt your viewpoints because they're your viewpoints. Well, in fact, Thich Nhat Hanh had an awful lot to say about that and his precepts for contemporary people um, for his TP in order that he wrote. He, he, one of the precepts says not to force anybody to adopt your, try, not to try to force anybody to adopt your opinions by no means whatsoever, including education which would be what we, you know, often foist on our children, which really means think like I think. Um, that's, that's really doing a tremendous disservice. You, I think you do need to let your children know what's important to you, though, you know, so they don't think the issues 
aren't important. But. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering from a psychological perspective, like a development, like a development of a child and a certain adult, do you have to um, create even a temporary sense of solid self before you can uh, release that or empty yourself of self? This thing is some folks that really suffer because they don't know themselves yet. We use the word self in a number of different ways. In the sense of what we would consider ego strength, which is the capacity for effective psychological functioning, you don't let go of the capacity. Over development, you develop increased ego strength in the sense of capacity for effective psychological functioning. We don't let go of self in that sense, and that has to develop over time. But the sense of oneself as separate and apart, a thing apart from everything else, um, experiences, and both 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 um, psychology and the Buddhist said that memory actually helps create that sense of self because some. All these things that happen, all these experiences, are received by the same flow of consciousness and can lead us to the conclusion that there's something here to whom all of these experiences are happening. Um, When we quit clinging to memories, which both the Buddha and St. John said, don't store those things in your mind, have your experiences let go of them, have your experiences let go of them. when we quit clinging so much to these, these things that heighten our sense of self and, and, and make it up, then self in the sense of seeing oneself as a part and separate can diminish. But I, I think probably everyone growing up, um, the mere fact that the world, what looks like the world outside of us doesn't always jive with what I want and we find that opposition and that bumping up against, I mean, that those kind of things heighten this sense of self, and everybody will experience it. But we can learn to get beyond it also. I think we're just about out of time. OK. Um, I wanted to mention just a quick word about Donna. Uh, for those of you new to the center, Donna is a practice of generosity. Uh, this particular talk is given freely, as are all the teachings here at, at Common Ground. Uh, on the other hand, um, Mary Jo and the center, um, we think are, we're able to be here. She makes a living of um, pure generosity. So if you could just take a moment and just think about mindful giving and receiving, um, that would be really helpful. Of course, you know, Mary Jo has eight kids. <laughs> what did he just say? I missed that. Uh, you have eight kids. Oh, they're all adults. Yes, three cats. I have three cats to support me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.